0: Welcome to today's Hubbard and O'Brien Economics Podcast. We're recording this one on Friday, September 18, 2020. I'm Tony O'Brien. I'm a professor of economics at Lehigh University. Joining me as always is my co-author, Glenn Hubbard, who is a professor of finance and economics at Columbia University. Glenn, how are you today? Great. Good to hear. So as you know, we're devoting today's podcast to several questions asked by students in Eva Jadula's Principles of Economics class at Notre Dame. If any students or instructors listening would like us to address a particular question or issue on a future podcast, you can contact us via email at Economics at gmail.com. H-U-B-B-A-R-D-O-B-R-I-E-N, economics, at gmail.com. We'll be happy to hear from you. Glenn, here's the first question that uh, Eva Jadula's principal's students raised, or one of the ones that they raised. You served twice in the federal government, once in the Treasury Department, and once in the White House as chair of the Council of Economic Advisors, the CEA. Maybe we can talk a little bit about your experience on the CEA. First, what is the CEA? What role does it play in the federal government?
1: Well, I thought it was great that uh, one of Professor D's students asked this question, because for economists, the Council of Economic Advisors is a way to get uh, economic analysis and expertise directly into politics and practice. You know, presidents are obviously surrounded by political people. The Council of Economic Advisors is supposed to supply sort of unvarnished economic advice. The president may choose to take it or not, it's a small organization with staff, it may be 40 people, but it has a pretty outsized role because as we know economics has a lot to say in
0: government. Do you think during your time the CEA had a significant influence on the federal government's economic policy?
1: Well, I think it did and I think CEA often does. It really depends on what the president wants. You know, I've always described the council of economic advisors as a small consulting firm with one client. It's just the client happens to be the president of the United States. And the question is what the president wants. So in, in my time, the CEA was very active in a number of big tax policy issues, in uh, economic relationships with Japan, uh, Argentina, the 9-11 problems, economic problems, as well as the terrorist fallout in the United States and corporate accounting scandals that were true at the time. So I think CEA can bring that economic voice to the table. And for economists who work in CEA, myself included, you get to take something back. You get new questions to study and write about.
0: Looking at it now from the outside, do you think the role of the CEA has changed since you served?
1: Well, you know, CEA is up to the individual president. So it's more or less at the table, depending on what that president wants. I think some things stay the same, which is CEA gets really high quality economists from universities and industry and elsewhere in the government to serve uh, and brings unvarnished economic advice. The topics, of course, change over time. Right now, I think whoever wins the presidential election in November The next CEA is going to be focused on a lot of issues ranging from the pandemic to how we deal with the fallout in our own economy from technological change and globalization.
0: Interesting. Here's another question from a Notre Dame student. Economic inequality is an issue that's been getting a lot of attention in recent years. Maybe we can talk a little about some aspects of the issue. First, should we be concerned more about inequality in income, inequality in wealth? Should we be concerned about inequality at all?
1: Well, it's a great question. Uh, and the answer is yes, but with an asterisk. So, yes, we should be concerned about inequality because it may mean that some people are not succeeding in participating in our economy, that is, participating in meaningful work or in the desire that all of us have to build some wealth for our future. That's a big deal. Inequality in income is different from inequality in wealth, of course. And I think in both areas where economists have focused most is on what does it take to get people to succeed in earning an income or in building wealth? There are, of course, distributional arguments that should we tax income or wealth more for people who have more of it. So progressive income taxation or or wealth taxation. I think most economists line up behind progressive income taxation. Wealth taxation has a much more mixed view among economists and the public.
0: What do you see as the main sources of income or wealth inequality?
1: Well, I'd be interested in your take on this too from where, where I sit Uh, A lot of it from income inequality has to do with these big forces of technological change and globalization that have made the skills that some people have even more valuable while making the skills of others less valuable. So there's two ways to look at that. One is that those forces just lead to income inequality and we've seen that in the United States and other industrial economies in recent decades. But another is that it calls upon public policy to strengthen the skills of people who are adversely affected by technological change and globalization. I mean, in class, we always tell students the gainers can compensate the losers. The question is, is, do they? For wealth inequality, uh, it's much the same thing. As we have increased uh, technological change and globalization, some types of businesses have exploded in value and created enormous amounts of wealth others much less so.
0: Yes, I, I agree. The, the whole topic is a little bit slippery, as you know, because measuring inequality is not always straightforward. Uh, we know that um, you can look, for instance, if you're interested in income inequality, you can just look at how much people earn. Or you can say, well, how much do they have after we take into account taxes? Which, as you point out, in the U.S. we have a progressive tax system. So people who have higher incomes pay more in in taxes, and that by itself reduces some inequality. And then there are also transfers that lower-income people receive. Transfers of various types: they supplemental assistance um, for food, um, sometimes housing assistance, uh, Medicaid, the health insurance program that is aimed at low-income people. If you take those things into account, then uh, income inequality is less than it otherwise would be. Uh, I was also struck by looking at some studies that show that wealth inequality is often due, as you mentioned, to the fact that people start up a firm and are very successful at that. And apparently there are more people at the top of the wealth scale who have gotten that way through starting firms than who have gotten that way through inheriting wealth, which is often seen as sort of the, in some non-economic sense, uh, the least uh, desirable because uh, it's really their parents or grandparents who have earned it. And I, I think you're right that If we look at policies, probably the policies on which, just to put the political economy hat on, that tend to get the most support are the ones that are aimed at trying to provide better skills for people who currently have low incomes. Because as we talk about in the textbook, ultimately we expect that incomes reflect productivity and the value of the products that um, someone is contributing to producing. And if you can raise the productivity of people by improving their educational outcomes, then their incomes will rise, that those sorts of policies tend to have a lot of support because they don't run into the potential disincentive effects of very high taxes on high incomes, which may reduce the willingness of people to start new companies or to work super long hours.
1: I agree, I, I think you know you bring up some really good policy examples and we talk about them in the book to the extent that people are concerned about high levels of wealth as being a problem it 's often thinking the either about inheritance, which you mentioned, but it could also be issues of monopolies or crony capitalism but To me, as an economist, the way I would see it is if you're concerned about those things, go after them. If you think there are some monopolies, use antitrust policy. We talk about that in the book. Uh, If you think there's crony capitalism, don't do that. So I I think that uh, this is a discussion that probably mostly should center on helping everybody participate in the economy. It's a great feature of what we do in Hubbard and O'Brien book. But frankly, Adam Smith himself and the classical economists had much the same thing to say.
0: Here's a related question from the Notre Dame student. During the Democratic primaries, we heard quite a lot about universal basic income, UBI. It was proposed by one of the Democratic candidates, Andrew Yang. UBI proposals differ. Andrew Yang's version of UBI would have the federal government send a check for $1,000 each month to every US citizen over the age of 18. So everybody would get a check from a very poor person all the way up to Jeff Bezos or Bill Gates. What do you think about UBI as a way of reducing income inequalities? Well, you
1: know, universal basic income is an idea that's not really Democrat or Republican. I mean, Milton Friedman, certainly a conservative thinker from the past, Uh, had ideas for a negative income tax. To me, it solves some problems, but creates others. So some people have said, why don't we just replace all of our transfer programs with one universal basic income program? I suppose uh, that's an idea. Uh, In the current policy climate for the pandemic, we've sent direct checks to households, which is kind of like universal basic income. But going back to our earlier discussion, I think it misses a key point. If our goal is to have everybody be able to participate in the society and have the dignity that that economic participation brings, we need to help people get their skills to work. So while you know we could certainly discuss UBI, I'd hate to see that be uh, a stepping stone away from preparing people to actually participate
0: in the economy. Yes, those are good points. Uh, I think one of the appealing aspects of UBI, and this goes back to, as you mentioned, Milton Friedman's negative income tax proposal and, and other similar proposals, is that as we give transfer payments today, we subsidize particular things. So we're subsidizing food or we're subsidizing housing or medical care for people with low incomes. And of course, to operate those programs, you have to have a bureaucracy of people who are distributing the checks and checking to see whether people are eligible and um, going through a lot of those sorts of things, which of course is costly. So the federal government has to pick up um, those expenses. And UBI by, at least in one version of the proposal, the Friedman type, Version, sweeping those programs away and just sending people money um, would seem to be more efficient because you no longer have the costs of running the programs that we have um, today. And it also allows people to spend the money as they would choose to spend it rather than have the decisions made for them by the government. But as you say, one of the things that I think a lot of people find potentially troubling and again, this has to do maybe more with economics or or more with um, political science or sociology, is we don't want to cut people off from the workplace, that there are a lot of good things having to do with going to work and interacting with people and learning skills and so on. And it's one reason why the earned income tax credit, which ties transfer payments essentially to people's wages. That if you are working and your income is below a certain threshold, then the, the government in effect is, is giving you a tax credit, uh, which oftentimes means that you're going to earn more uh, than you would otherwise. In fact, it, it always means that. And that's a way of increasing incomes of lower income people but still having them uh, participate fully in the labor market and get the benefits from doing that. So it's an interesting proposal.
1: Yeah, I mean, I agree with what you just said, Tony, 100%. I think people forget that a lot of the skills we all get in the workplace are from working. So it's learning by doing on the job, whatever that job is. So keeping people out of the workplace isn't just cutting them off from earnings today, it's cutting them off from advancement. We know that from the labor economics discussion in the text. So interesting idea to talk about, but personally, I would rather see us focus on getting people prepared for work.
0: Here's a question I often receive from principal students, and I'm sure you do as well. Suppose I go on to major in economics. What can I do with my degree?
1: Gosh, I always tell them, you hit the lottery. By being, I mean, economics is about the most flexible undergraduate degree I can imagine. Some people, it's rare, would go on to be economists, but that's not the sense in which I mean it. I can't think of a better degree to start any career in business or to prepare oneself for business school or law school uh, or even public policy related work or work in the social sector. Why do I feel that way? Economics at its core is about trade-offs. It's about uh, a lens through which you can see the world. As I said uh, the other day in the Professor D's class you asked me about, model beats no model all the time. And economists have these simple ways of viewing the world that are powerful. So by all means, major in it.
0: I saw um, something that i mentioned in the last podcast that kind of brought home to me how even simple economic concepts that we pick up with an undergraduate major in economics can be very useful. And this was a couple of weeks ago when Disney had its earnings call with financial analysts. And these earnings calls are a way for the analysts to quiz the the top managers of a company and, and ask them questions about how likely the company is going to be successful. And um, some of these analysts were puzzled why Disney was keeping Walt Disney World open. And they said, well, you, you have to be losing money because from all the reports we have, not many people are actually buying tickets and not many people are staying in the hotel. So why are you persisting in opening those theme parks and losing money? And Christine McCarthy, who's Disney's chief financial officer, CFO, she gave the absolute perfect economic response. She said, well, yes, you know, not all that many people are going to Disney World today compared to what we'd like. And yes, we're losing money, but we're covering our variable costs. In other words, the ticket revenue we're getting and the revenue from people staying in in the hotels is enough to cover the cost of running the parks, and have something left over. So actually, we're losing less money by having Walt Disney World open than we would lose if we kept it idle. And so that's not a a particularly complicated idea, but it's one that we cover in economics. And most economics majors, I don't know whether she was an economics major or not, but most economics majors would have that in mind and be able to apply it even in situations that uh, where they're not actually being an economist.
1: It brings tears to my
0: eyes. Anybody, (laughs) you got it. Yeah, I guess one thing I would mention often mentioned to my own students is that if you are thinking of economics as more than just an excellent major for a general career in business or in law school or in public service, it helps to be able to to do some statistical analysis. And I know that our own students at Lehigh, we urge them to become not only conversant with um, Excel, the ins and outs of using Excel, but also with um, statistical programs like Stata or R, because those skills are actually ones that many firms, that consulting firms and, and others that look to students to be able to do some data analysis value quite highly. So someone who is thinking of, well, you know, I don't really wanna get an advanced degree in economics, but I wanna further my ability to tell potential employers, you know, I have, I have some skills that I've learned in the economics major that I think I can apply. Doing more statistical analysis, taking, searching out those courses which exist at most schools is probably a good preparation that they might think about.
1: Couldn't agree more.
0: Great. Glenn, this has been an interesting discussion. I hope that the students who ask these questions feel that we covered the information well. A reminder, this podcast is available on iTunes. If you'd like, you can subscribe and make us part of your podcast feed. Please also keep checking our blog, O'BrienEconomics.com, where we periodically post new content. You can subscribe to the blog to receive email alerts about new posts. And again, we'd like to hear from you if you have a question or an issue that you would like us to talk about in a future podcast. Thanks again to everyone for joining us for this conversation. We look forward to connecting with instructors and students again on a future Hubbard and O'Brien economics podcast. We'll see you next time.